Perhaps one of these scenarios rings true for you. I hate going to work every day. All I can think about is when will five o'clock come? Or perhaps is it Friday yet? Perhaps you would say this, student, I'm trying to stay motivated to get my schoolwork done, but it seems so pointless. Plus, all my friends are partying and having fun. I know God cares about my schoolwork, but I just really, I just, I just don't see the point, at least not now. Or perhaps you're a mom and you'd say something like this. I love my kids and I love being a mom, but nothing ever prepared me for the drudgery of caring for my kids. If I ever had time to sleep, I'm sure I would dream about wiping noses, bottoms, and counters because it feels like that's all that I do. Perhaps you're a caregiver and you would say something like this. I love my father and I want to honor him even as I find myself caring for him at this end stage of his life. But the work is just so mundane and so monotonous. Do any of these statements resonate with you? Perhaps you can hear yourself saying something like this about the work that God has called you to do in this season of your life. Whether that is as a student or as a caretaker or as a homeschooling mom, perhaps as a blue-collar worker or a white-collar professional, whatever it is, we all know that work makes up a tremendous amount of our lives. It takes up a lot of our energy and an awful lot of our time. And I think that we can all agree, no matter what type of experience you've had with work, that except for on the very best of days, and those tend to be few, work is really hard, isn't it? For the last 14 weeks, we have been talking about the gospel, what it is, how it works in our life, and how it actually has power to unleash sanctification in our hearts and in our lives. We have been claiming that the gospel is central to our understanding of faith and the way that we grow and the way we live faithfully as Christians. Now, we have veered a little bit from our traditional pattern of preaching here at Trinity. Normally, Mark or I take a passage of Scripture and walk through it. We explain it and we apply it to our lives and we will we'll keep doing that. But we've, we've paused a little bit and are taking a slightly different approach as we are considering a central theme from the Bible deeply, the gospel, and then working it out and see how it affects all the different parts of our lives. And we've seen how, I hope, how incredibly practical this is. The gospel transforms everything about our lives. It transforms the way we view God and the way we view ourselves and the way that we view those who are around us. And today, we're going to at last bring this series to a close by talking about how the gospel shapes our understanding of work. We could call it gospel-centered vocation or a gospel-centered view of work. I like to use the word vocation better than work. I'll, I'll use them interchangeably this morning. Uh, but with vocation, it gives us a broader term because I'm talking much more about your career, much more than about your career. Some of you are retired. Some of you are in school. Some of you don't work outside of the home. We all have different things that God has called us to for different seasons of life. And vocation captures much more of, of that idea. 
Vocation is, it describes the main thing that occupies your time, that is for the good of others. The main thing that occupies your time. So this would, of course, apply to students and professionals and homemakers and working parents and caretakers and volunteers and even those who are seeking jobs. So no matter what it is you find yourself doing, the question that we want to ask, the question that we want to understand is how does the gospel affect it? How does the gospel intersect with your Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock? Now, we can be really tempted to keep faith and work separate. We may not do this intentionally. We may, we may really want to live for Christ in every part of our life. We may want to live for Him on Tuesdays at 1 o'clock, but we may really struggle to connect. What does my faith have to do with this job that I hate or this math test that I don't see the point of? What does this have to do with changing this diaper? What is, how does faith affect this? And what can happen is that we can accidentally become atheists, functional atheists, in that, in that we view our work without a God, without, in, without having a consideration for God. And that doesn't reflect a biblical perspective. And what happens is that we may naturally turn our work into something that just reflects our own desires our own goals and our own methods for getting what we want. And if you have much experience in work or school or, or learning an instrument or planning a garden or painting a wall or wiping off a counter, we know that work is not a good savior. It is not ultimately satisfying. So the question is, how does this fit in for us? Now, I think it can be helpful to consider a, two different ways that we view work wrongly. I think that we find that we slip into one of two extremes in how we functionally view our work. We could call it like this, that functionally we see work as the daily grind or from the perspective of being a workaholic. Now I should say, I know you know the Sunday school answers for how we should view work, right? You would probably say something like, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, right? Okay, I'm talking about functionally. What do you actually act upon? How does what you believe affect your behavior? Does it affect how you study? Does it affect how hard you tackle that craft project? Functionally, okay? So, so that's, that's the difference. Um, Let's think about the daily grind first, right? Perhaps some of you see, or some of us, see our vocation as an unpleasant necessity that we just have to survive, right? You hate your job or the season of life that God has called you to or whatever it is that you're spending your time on and you are watching the clock. You live for the weekend. You just can't wait for Friday at 5.01, or perhaps you can't wait for 8 o'clock when the kids are finally down for the night and you have some time for yourself. You may find yourself doing the bare minimum to get by. You just got to get the grade to get out of the class or just get what's done so the boss will not get on your case. Menial tasks and chores, they seem like a waste of your time or perhaps beneath your skill. Perhaps you procrastinate. Wait and study until the last minute because it's not that important. 
Or maybe you keep a countdown, countdown timer on your phone for summer vacation. Anybody have one of those? You say something like, I just can't wait till I retire and I can finally live the life that I want. You see, if you think about your work or your calling or your vocation as the daily grind, you're constantly going to be thinking about leisure. Leisure is the only thing that delivers you from the daily grind. Pleasure and leisure, that is your savior from the hell of work that you're in. The extreme opposite is that the perspective of the workaholic. For the workaholic, work is the center of your life. It is the thing that gives you meaning, that gives you purpose, that gives you gratification. Your friends may describe you as committed and disciplined, but some others might describe you as, as obsessed. Perhaps, and it doesn't have to be work proper, perhaps you're a parent and you're obsessed with your kid's education. And that is the center of your life. Perhaps as a student, you're devastated if you don't get the grade that you worked for. Or perhaps you're putting everything you have into success of the office so that when you come home, you don't have anything left to give those whom you serve at home. For the workaholic, you find yourself constantly thinking about and living for success and achievement and recognition and progress and titles and resumes and satisfaction. You see, we can fall off the wagon on either side. Work as the daily grind or work as the essence of life. We're either obsessed or disengaged. And I think it can help us this morning that, that if you think about your vocation and what God has called you to do in this season of your life, try to place yourself on that spectrum, right? Where do you fall? And, and it changes and it can oscillate back and forth. And remember, we're thinking about functionally, how do you function and what you believe about work? This can vary by responsibility. For example, a father could be a workaholic at the office and be a daily grinder at home with his family. He could find his work at the office as satisfying and, and what gives him meaning and value, but when he comes home with his family, he's just doing the bare minimum to get by, waiting for the weekend, Monday at 8 o'clock. You see, there can be a temptation to fall off the wagon on either side. So what we want to do this morning is we want to think about what does God say about work? And specifically, how does the gospel help us to be good workers in whatever it is that God has called us to do? Now, I don't have the passages on the screen this morning, but we're going to look at three passages of Scripture, all from Genesis. And so I'd invite you, if you're not already there, to make your way to Genesis chapter 1. And let's read these three passages together. Starting in chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing 
that moves on the earth. And God said, verse 29, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Look at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Now look at chapter 2, just verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. In chapter 3, we read of the effects of the fall. When Adam and Eve rejected God's rule and chose to try to rule themselves, and so God cursed them. And we read about that curse in starting, we'll read this morning in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For your dust and to dust you shall return. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as a people who have seen, who have tasted and have seen that you are good, as we have experienced the love of God in Christ, Father, we want everyone to know how magnificent you are. So, Father, we want to accomplish that in part in our good deeds and the way that we live. So, Father, our prayer is that this morning, that as your word goes out and covers our hearts, that you would have your will with us. I pray, Father, that your word would accomplish what you intend. For those whose hearts will be soft, let it be implanted. For those whose hearts are hard, let them be hardened. Father, accomplish your purposes. I pray that to that end, that I would not get in the way, but that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, they can be forgotten. Let your word remain and bear fruit in our lives, we pray. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. If we consider these passages together, we can come up with a brief biblical foundation for what God says about work. Three biblical observations about God's design for work. The first thing we see in this passage is that God is a God who works. God works. The very beginning of the Bible, the Bible says that in the beginning, God what? He creates. God is a God who creates. He's a creator God. You could say that God's into manufacturing. Right from the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, God is at work. He's 
crafting, he's separating, he's organizing, he's filing, he's examining, he's managing, and he's judging, declaring all things to be good. It's very clear. God works. Chapter 2, verse 2 says it very specifically, that on the seventh day, God finished his work, and he goes on to say that he rests from his work. So the text quite literally says that God finishes his work and that he rests from his work. So often when we think about work, we think of work as something that we want to avoid at all costs. Something that we try to escape. Something that we have to do to get by. We want to do as little work as possible because that's not the good life. The good life is something other than work. But already we see from Genesis 1-1, right, that's a wrong, unbiblical view of work. God is a God who works. And if God works, then we must understand work to be good. And in our lives, it is something that is holy and sanctified to the Lord. So God works. We also see from this text that work is actually a gift from God. It's part of his good gift to man. We who are inclined to think of work as belonging only to the world of sin, all right? We, we see this in often how we describe heaven. We don't hear people talking very much about work in heaven, yet the Bible's clear. We will have jobs and things to do in heaven, but there will be no toil, all right? Work is a part of the created world, and it is good. Genesis 1, verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Not only does God work, but he has given us work to do, and work is one of his good gifts. I remember this, that when I was 16, my dad, who has a, uh, a contracting business, uh, he very dramatically, my dad is not a dramatic man, he walked outside and he threw me the keys of a new bobcat that he had just purchased. He said, son, the Bible says subdue the earth, so go move that dirt over there. And I said, yeah, right, go move the dirt. Right? But it's a picture that God has called us to work, to subdue the earth, to rule over it as our habitation. Work is a good gift from God. And God calls us to imitate Him in how we work. We imitate God's creating and His organizing work. Think about it like this. Much like the work that God did, man is to be fruitful, right? To be fruitful and to multiply. To fill up the earth, to subdue it and have dominion over it. The work that God gives man to do, it's very similar to the work that God does. It's as if we are to continue God's work initiatives in our lives. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, the, verse, the text specifically says, look down at that verse together. The Lord God took the man and put or placed him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to keep it. Now, notice all of this comes when? Before sin entered the world. Work is not a part of God's punishment for sin. It's not a part of the curse. Work is part of what God created for us to do and declared to be very good. But just like all of God's creation, work has been affected and mangled and marred and disfigured by sin. Once sin entered the world, once 
mankind decided that we wanted to rule ourselves, to be our own God, to live without a boss, God cursed his creation. And no part of it went untouched. In verses 16 through 19 of chapter 3, God very specifically told Adam some of Adam and Eve, some of the ways that their lives were going to be affected because of sin. Some of the ways that the good gifts that He has given to them are now going to be marred. For example, we see every single one of God's good gifts affected. Children are a gift from the Lord. Yet in chapter 3, starting in verse 16, we read that children are going to be conceived and birthed and raised in difficulty. You see it? Marriage is a good gift from the Lord, wouldn't we say? But it's going to be full of difficulty. Work, which is a good gift from the Lord, is now going to be thorny and produce mixed results. Now, God says, you're going to actually have to be dependent upon work in order to eat. You'll notice that when God placed man in the garden, their work, their life was not dependent upon their work. The food was there. It was already established. Now you will become dependent upon your work to eat. And it's by the sweat of your brow that you will eat until you die. Do you see the pattern? Because of sin, God, He doesn't take away the good gifts that He gives us, but now they are less than they were. They're marred and somewhat broken because of sin. Now work has become toil and mixed with all sorts of frustration. Can I get an amen from any frustrated worker, right? Do you know why your computer crashes? Not, not my fault. It's because of sin. <laughs> Do you know why your equipment breaks? It's because of sin. Do you know why your livestock gets sick and your land floods? Do you know why your math homework is so hard? Do you know why your reports are so boring and so toilsome? Do you know why your chores, children, are frustrating and not fun? It's because of sin. Do you know why it is so hard to create new things, whether it's songs or graphics or new software or new filing systems? It's because now the ground produces thorns. Because of sin, work has become toilsome. You can do your best and not succeed. You can do your best and get thorns. You can try your hardest and still get C's. People can steal from you. Teachers are unfair. Bosses give the wrong person the promotion. Life is now toilsome. Yet God intended for, for us to live, for life to be a connection between work and relationships and raising children and marriage and family, for all of that to go seamlessly together. But sin has disrupted that and fractured these things. But one other thing to notice is not only is work a gift from God that has now been uh, marred by sin, but that we actually reflect God in how we work. We can display God to the world. We can be His image bearers in our work. Did you notice that the nature of work that God has called Adam and Eve to was so much like the work that He does? God creates by speaking the world into existence. And so man is to continue to create by being fruitful and by multiplying, by filling the earth. We see God organizing and managing. He, he separates light from darkness. He brings order to chaos. 
And we are called to continue that as we subdue the earth and rule over it by naming animals, by mowing grass, by editing photos and filing them, by figuring out chemistry and engineering, and by fixing and rotating tires on cars. So all of this, God's image is continued after the fall. After sin, God doesn't take work from us, and he doesn't curse us with it, but it becomes really, really hard. I think in, if, we, if we were to categorize some of this, we, we see a couple different types of work that you could probably fit your, the work that you do into. All right, we see this together, three types of categories of work in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It might help you if you identify where you spend the most of your time. One type of work is creative work. Some of you are involved in creative work like designing and building, like developing or pursuing artistic projects. If you're a student, then you are, you're learning and you're also creating the ability to think and to reason and, and establishing new ideas and opinions. Electricians create new systems. Leaders create new ways to, to present ideas and connect people together. Crafters make blankets and flowers and artwork. Missionaries and evangelists and teachers look for new ways to, to make relationships and then tell people about Jesus. This is all creative work. And it's work that God, the Creator God, does and delights in. But there's another kind of work. Perhaps you are more involved in providing work. God placed Adam and Eve in a garden that produced fruit that was good to eat. God provided for them. And he provided a habitation for them that was suitable for life. And so we image God. We reflect God. We tell the, what, we tell the world what God is like when we provide for other people. That can be in providing an income for your home to literally put food on the table and a roof over the head. Or it could be in providing a service in your job. Retailers and social workers provide for others by finding a shelter and a place to live. Farmers and engineers harvest and produce natural resources and products that are for the good of others. Utility workers and IT managers work to provide water and software and heat and gas and technology to others for their good and their prospering. Pilots and bus drivers provide transportation. Parents and teachers and educators provide education and a place for learning. Do you see how this works? As we bring order and dominion to the world, we imitate God in providing for the good of other people. So work is a very God-like thing to do, providing work. But there's another category of work that is only going to exist on earth, and that's redemptive work. That's, you see, so much of our work is working to alleviate and minimize and even undo the effect of sin. Sin has produced so many negative effects in our lives. There will be no doctors in heaven. If you're a doctor, if you're a healthcare worker, you'll be out of a job. You'll have to have a new job, right? So many of our jobs are like that, working to minimize or undo the effect of sin. Healthcare workers and caretakers, hospice workers, work to alleviate pain and treat bodies that have been physically broken. Counselors and social workers work to care for people whose 
emotional lives have been broken and relationships that have been broken. Mechanics and tailors, repairmen, cleaners, all work to repair things that are affected by the fall. There will be no dusty counters in heaven, right? Lawyers and law enforcement, politicians, they're working together to prevent criminal activity and to uh, cause justice to reign that humans may flourish. Do you see? All of this is work that is good and that it's undoing the effects of the fall to serve and care for other people. Now, we should recognize that not all work is good, right? Not all work is legitimate work that's created by God. If you have a job in the porn industry, that is a bad job. That's not good work, right? Spammers or those who scam, who rip you off or who steal. It's not work that images God, but it's sinful activity that, that steals from and hurts and preys upon other people. Not only that, but we can do work that is good in sinful ways. You can cut corners. You can cheat. You can lie. You can be selfish. But the question for us is this morning is that now that we have this basic view of a basic theology of vocation, which I hope is encouraging to you, it's encouraging to me, but now, now that we see how our work is affected by sin, the question is this, how does the gospel change this? How does the gospel influence the way that we view our work, no matter what it is we've been called to? It's obvious that work is a central part of our life, no matter what stage of life you're in. I hope that you're spending your time not selfishly only pursuing your own interests, but pursuing the good of other people in what you do. It doesn't have to be at a paid job. It doesn't have to be in any job at all, but to be serving other people. We all want to know that what we do matters. We all want to know that it makes a difference. And so we see immediately that the way that we view our work is connected with what we understand about identity and meaning and significance. We've been building upon this theme that the gospel, it establishes our identity for us. So we're already right on the correct foundation of asking how does the gospel affect this? Well, this is where we can build upon what we've spent months establishing in the truth of the gospel. Because when we say that the gospel changes everything, I mean it. It changes everything. So let's try to apply what we've learned about the gospel to our work and to our vocation. But let's remember this, because this is the best news you can hear this morning. The gospel is the good news that God is willing to save sinners who don't deserve to be saved. That in the person of Jesus Christ, God has established a rescue mission. And that Jesus came to live a life of perfect obedience. The life that you were supposed to live. And then he died the death that you were supposed to die. And then he rose from the dead. He conquered death to show you the life, the eternal life that you were supposed to live. And that if you repent of your sins and if you place your faith in him, then you too can be saved. If you turn from your sin, if you stop living like Adam and Eve in rebellion to God, if you stop living to be your own boss, your own ruler, and you trust in Christ, you can be saved. This is important information. Because the Bible teaches that if, if we don't do this, that if you don't turn from your sin, it doesn't matter how much you work, 
Your body's going to wear out and you're going to die a physical death, which will only be the beginning of eternal death and torment. So my friends, let me tell you the best news you can hear and invite you once again to turn from satisfying yourself and place your faith in Christ. Trust him to satisfy you. Trust him to make you happy. And it's only in light of this that we can begin to understand how the gospel transforms the way that we, the way that we work. So let's ask this. Well, how does the gospel transform our work? The first thing we see, just by taking the gospel category and applying it to work, is that the gospel actually gives meaning to all of our work. I would add that the gospel eliminates drudgery. We all have those tasks in our job that we hate, right? I don't know what, I won't tell you what mine are, <laughs> right? We have those tasks in our jobs that we don't like. So how does the gospel influence that? You see, when you come to know God through the gospel, what happens is that you have this new understanding of who God is and what he's like. All of a sudden you realize that God alone deserves worship and praise. If you're not there, you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian without acknowledging that God alone deserves praise. And so what happens is that, by definition, you stop worshiping yourself, you stop acting like you're the most important thing, and you start acting like He's the most important thing. You start living for the Lord. And when you realize particularly what Jesus has done on the cross— when your cross gets big, right? When you functionally understand and appreciate what Jesus has done, then what happens is you want others to have a big cross too. When I see how great Christ is, that he's forgiven me and all of my sin, I naturally want you to see how great Christ is and how he has forgiven my sin so that he can forgive your sin. And then you in turn want other people to see how great Christ is. And so the cross is getting bigger and bigger and more people are knowing and seeing and enjoying God. That's how the Christian life works. If you don't have that desire, something is totally wrong and perhaps broken. Right, We have this new desire to make God look good, as he already is. This is the context for 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's what Christians do. So then when we realize that all of our legitimate work, that it actually images and imitates God, then all of a sudden, this gives purpose to our work, even to our menial tasks. Suddenly, we can perform even the simplest tasks as an act of worship, especially when we reflect God's character and when we work in ways that reflect His ways. Suddenly, your hours of filing are not misery to be endured, but they're a continuation of God's work in the world. And when you do it well, when you file well and fast and effectively and without error, you're pointing to the God who is the God of order. And you realize all of a sudden that you can file in such a way that imitates God. Do you see how this works? We can glorify God by being good at what we do. Whatever it is you do, I don't care if it's crafting, driving a plane or a bus or making stuff, be the best you can absolutely be. Do it at the best, to the best of your ability and then work at getting better at it. 
Christians should be the best in their places of employment all over the world. We should be the best workers. We should be the best artisans, the best musicians, the best writers, the best teachers, because we're working to bring glory to God. We can do that by being on time, by being honest, by honoring our employers. Try to make your employer money. Honor your employer. Work hard even when no one is watching. We can glorify God when we take all of his word and apply it to our work, obeying him. Because when we obey God, we honor God by submitting to him. So be good at what you do. Christians should strive to be the best, not so that we get paid more, not so that we draw attention to ourselves. That is very unnatural and unchristian, but so that we can point to God. Whatever it is you do, do it in such a way to make God look good. Good work attracts attention. Not immediately always, often it does, but you can do what you do in a way that makes God look good. Which also means that you can do your work in a way that steals glory from him and pours it back on yourself, which is disgusting idolatry. When we do our jobs well, we attract attention for God. And so what just happened? (laughs) Suddenly, all of our work just became meaningful as we seek to glorify God in what he's ordained us to do. All because the gospel has freed us from living for our own glory to live for his glory. Now we're free to please God in how we work. That's just one reason. Another way this works is the gospel frees us to love other people. We've seen this in recent weeks, how the gospel breaks the bondage of love for Nathan, which I have naturally built in me, and gives me love for others. Just as Jesus chose to set aside his own interests in order to love us at great cost to himself, we are now freed up to do the same thing for others. We've seen how God works in our life to help us not only love God with all of our hearts, but also to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if you think about it, all work, hear me, church, all work is a chance to love other people. You have the chance to love your employer by working to see her be successful. You have the chance to love your patient by caring for him with skill and compassion. You love your customers by doing a good job and offering a legitimate service and by not cutting corners. You're loving your children when you wipe their bottoms or when you do laundry or when you patiently help them memorize Bible verses. Teachers, you love your students when you work hard to teach with clarity, to make complex ideas simple, and to communicate clearly and then grade them with fairness. You have a chance to love your family when you change the oil and put air in the tires and keep the insurance current and change the filter. It's all a chance to love other people. So, If God is calling us to lay down our lives for our friends and to love our neighbors, then we should ask the question in all of our work is, who is God calling you to love? Who does your work give you an opportunity to love? I mean, visualize these people. It really really helps. We all know this experience when, um, when you've had bad service and you want to be sure that you never give bad service to someone else. I remember saying, never mind, I won't say that. 
you'll find that if you personalize the people who are affected by your work, you have a new motivation, if you're a believer, to work unto the Lord. A third way that this works in our hearts is the gospel actually guards us from making work our identity. We're so prone to do this. We as sinners are tempted, alienated from God, we're tempted to find our identity in all sorts of other stuff that's not God. Right? We've seen this from the beginning. And work is one of the primary idols that we look to. Whether it's the life of comfort, the life by the ocean, in the chair, reading a book, right? Whether it's the life you think your work can give you, or whether it's the respect of your profession, or whether it's the satisfaction that comes from being told good job, we, those can all be distortions of work. Whether you're a workaholic who places her identity in being a mother, or an engineer, or a PhD, or whether you're miserable because you have a menial job that you hate, or a job that doesn't have respect, or because you have low self-esteem because you're unemployed, or feel useless because you're retired. All of those things are distortions of work. None of those things define you. Because in Christ, if you're in Christ, God has given you a new identity as a son or as a daughter of God. And so you're already okay. You're already accepted and loved and cherished in Christ. Finally, we see that the gospel gives us hope in that we recognize that he's making all things new. We know that the world, this, the heavens and earth as they now exist, will be destroyed and recreated better. And we long for that day. Redemptive work especially anticipates the new heavens and the new earth. We recognize that God's not going to leave his creation like this. Thorns are not going to always exist. The ground will not produce them for us always. We recognize that God is not going to leave his creation cursed by sin. The gospel more than anything demonstrates that God is undoing the curse of sin and death. And there are so many opportunities in our lives to work to undo the curse of sin. When you wipe dust off the counter, you are adding order and undoing the curse of sin. We are anticipating, we are calling other people to hope in a new heaven and a new earth which is unstained by sin. There will be no sick patients, no dirty floors, no weeds to pull, no broken dishwashers to repair. And so there's a sense when every time that you treat an illness, every time that you clean a floor, every time you pull the weed, every time you repair the dishwasher, you are in a sense cooperating with God's redemptive purposes, working to undo the effects of sin. You can work in a way that is making life a little more like God intended it to be in a world without sin just like it was in the garden. We're not placing our hope in what we can create by our work, but we work in a way that says, hey, there's a better world that is coming. So I'm gonna do what I'm called to do right now to the best of my ability, because I want you to know the God who's made me. So there's a sense when all of our work becomes kingdom work, not paycheck work, but kingdom work. Because in everything, we can work for the glory of God by depending upon him. Work is hard. You need help. 
So you depend on the Lord and you point to him. And as you do this, you proclaim the gospel to the world. We were created for this very purpose. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God's prepared beforehand for us to do. So church, whatever it is you find yourself doing, work with all your heart to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ came and has worked on our behalf. And that we are not stat we don't have our identity given to us by how good we are at our jobs or how respectful our job is. But Father, that we can hope only in what Christ has done for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would work in our hearts to to change us from being selfish, lazy workers to gracious, generous, hard workers. Change us from being idolatrous workaholics to those who work as unto the Lord with all of our hearts for the good of others. We pray, Father, that you would work and establish this in our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's have a chance to respond to God's word to get together, giving him the praise he deserves.